0: Once again, every hour on the hour, coughing and puffin'. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous for six hours straight, every hour on the hour. Afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, we'll be taking a look at Asphalt Ohio, Missing Mom, and New Organs.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Donald Norman, who will discuss his book, Emotional Design.
0: And we'll also find out what makes fish breathe.
1: So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week and the Grokatron 5000, all coming up right here on Berkeley Grox. Welcome back to Birthday I'm Franklin. and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank?
0: Pretty good. How about you, Charles? Uh,
1: I'm uh, I'm feeling superific. I'm feeling uh, jazzed up for science.
0: So all your organs are fully functioning. Is that right?
1: Uh, last time I checked, I haven't brought them out in a while. So <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was meaning to get them out to get tanned this summer, but
0: you don't think you need to uh, get replacements for any of them?
1: Not yet, but uh, I'm going to go down to Target for maybe a new uh, spleen at some point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it turns out there's a company in Utah.
1: That's going to sell me a spleen?
0: No, they might be able to repair your heart if for some reason you get a heart attack or some part of your muscles Ah. there is damaged.
1: Wow. I've actually already had my heart repaired, but that's (laughs) another issue. (laughs) Because it's been broken so many times. (laughs) I'm sorry, Charles.
0: Yeah. So, aside from the skin and the blood, most tissue in the body do not conventionally uh, regenerate. That is, they do not remultiply and form new tissue.
1: Right. There's sort of a limit on, I guess, the number of times the cells can divide in the body.
0: Right. But this company in Utah, uh, Hydro Biosciences, is trying to change that. They're finding ways that they can stimulate the cells in your heart to become youthful again and go into that reproductive stage where they can... Form our uh, tissue,
1: so the super heart.
0: Yeah, the super heart.
1: <laughs> so I, I mean, imagine this could uh, work for other types of tissue as well.
0: Presumably, but the people who are primarily interested right now are the uh, victims of heart attacks.
1: Well, that would seem the most logical <laughs> group to be interested in.
0: Yes. So this is nice because you don't really have to go to uh, using those human embryonic stem cells for uh, creating new organs. You can just do it from the cells that are pre-existing. But there's been considerable interest and a lot of progress made. And there's a very nice article in the June issue of Technology Review.
1: All right, so do you ever feel like living in the uh, big city is like living in a jungle?
0: Ooh, the concrete jungle, That's right? That's right,
1: the big urban jungle.
0: <laughs> rage against the machine. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, they got to look at fixing that machine at some point.
0: <laughs> it's just gone out of rage, <laughs> huh?
1: It's gone out of control. Well, so it turns out that uh, if all the roads, buildings, and other solid structures in the 48 contiguous United States were crammed together, Mm -hmm. they would apparently cover 112,610 square kilometers, or what is apparently about the size of Ohio. Ohio? Yes. So we could just take all that stuff and uh, pile it on top of Ohio and-
0: Wow, what about Texas?
1: (laughs) I don't think you could have enough concrete to cover Texas.
0: (laughs) It's just too big Um, for its own good. Yeah,
1: maybe you really wouldn't want to, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I mean, this is an interesting work, and it was actually the first study to map out such impervious surface areas, which the authors say impact climate by creating urban heat islands and replacing plants that would sop up greenhouse gases.
0: hmm Right. Yeah, I know in Japan, I guess there's a requirement for many buildings to have the top made into gardens. Oh. So uh, to uh, dispel these heat islands. Oh, right. So by having greenery, it absorbs heat much better than just the concrete.
1: Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So this was interesting work, and it was published in the uh, recent issue of the journal EOS.
0: Have you seen any good movies lately?
1: The day after tomorrow does not count as one. Okay. About, Fahrenheit what? 9-11 was quite good. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: You mean it wasn't white chicks on that league.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're really in the same league, per se. <laughs> it's a temperature which freedom burns, right? <laughs> as far as uh, polemic uh, diatribes against a sitting president goes, quite good. <laughs>
0: so yeah, it does seem Michael Moore has a bit of a qualm with the president, huh?
1: You might not be able to detect it if mm. you see it, but there's a little bit of a twinge.
0: <laughs> so it turns out a lot of other people have qualms with the president, including the NRDC, the uh, National, National Res- Resources Defense Council. Okay, and their qualm is that the regulations that EPA has made for limiting mercury is too weak we're still putting too much mercury into the air I guess there's some senators right now uh, they recently signed a letter saying that we should toughen the emissions of mercury from plants most of them produce chlorine gas and sodium hydroxide. The Chlorine Institute on the other hand blames this on election year politics because they're not interested in these regulations. Oh I'm sure <laughs> and by their estimates they say it's only about 5 tons of mercury are released in the air each year which Could- they <laughs> which they deemed to be safe but I'm not sure
1: right well considering the way these numbers get played out it's hard to know what to believe
0: yes if anyone's interested they can read the May 31st issue of Chemical and Engineering News
1: All right, Frank, so do you miss your mom?
0: Oh, all the time. Don't you?
1: Well, yeah. Moms are good. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, it turns out, though, uh, mice that are born without a certain type of opioid receptor will not uh, notice the absence of their mothers.
0: Wow, you mean, like, just no recognition?
1: So this is the same receptor that uh, morphine works on in the mm-hmm. brain. And it turns out that mice who basically are missing this particular receptor will uh, not squeal as much or cry as much when their mother's taken away.
0: Wow. So this is like the solution for independence for people who are <laughs> <laughs> attached to their parents all the time. Huh? Uh,
1: I guess that's perhaps one possibility. So basically, they're suggesting that this could explain a number of social disorders that res- would result, I guess, from people having emotional attachment disorders. And they suggest that if uh, people aren't uh, getting the sort of emotional needs met, uh, they'll turn to uh, pharmacologists means, such as drugs, too.
0: You know, I, I always knew that religion would become outdated someday and science <laughs> would find all the solutions.
1: I, I'm sure God is in a bottle somewhere. I'm not sure which <laughs> bottle that is, but.
0: You think it's brownish inside or <laughs> purple?
1: <laughs> Maybe more sort of translucently pink or something. Mm, pink. Fun work, and it was carried out by uh, Francesca DiMato of the CNR Institute of Neuroscience and Psychobiology and published in the recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Donald Norman will join us to discuss his book, Emotional Design, Why We Love or Hate Everyday Things. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the modern marvels of the current era of technology have drastically changed the landscape of our daily lives. Where would we be without our cell phones, computers, and home entertainment systems? But those increases in technological gadgetry for better living have brought with them an added complexity, often causing one to wonder if we might just be better off without them. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss making technology more human-friendly is Professor Donald Norman. Professor Norman is co-founder of the Nielsen Norman Group, an executive consulting firm helping companies produce human-centered products and services. He serves on numerous advisory boards for companies and education. Currently, he is a professor of computer science and psychology at Northwestern University and the author of the new book, Emotional Design, Why We Love or Hate Everyday Things. Professor Norman, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. It's my pleasure. Uh, Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. And you've had a very interesting career advising companies on the design of usable technology. Uh, I'm just curious, what do you think uh, about our current level of sophistication when it comes to designing user-friendly technological devices?
2: On the one hand, it's getting better every year. On the other hand, it's getting worse every year. Well, basically, as as fast as some companies get the message and are actually starting to produce sensible, reasonable devices, um, even more companies come up and produce uh, all these whiz-bang things that none of us can figure out. And actually, the same applies within the divisions of a company. So one division might be doing wonderful, sleek, neat, easy-to-use stuff, and another division, a monster.
1: Hmm. So, actually, in your book, uh, Emotional Design, you, you mentioned, in fact, three levels of... Uh... It's
2: about the brain, and I oversimplify a lot of modern research on the psychology and neuroscience of emotion and say, hey, you know, there are three levels of processing, the visceral, the lowest level, that's the same for everybody, that's biologically determined. And I say there's a visceral design that goes along with that. That means it's about the appearance. Then there's a behavioral level, which is where we do all of our actions, but still subconscious. Mm -hmm. That's all the learned and skilled behavior. And there's a side of design about that, behavioral design, which is all about, can I use the thing? Does it feel good when I use it? Do I feel in control? And finally, the top level, which is, if you like, prefrontal lobe, the reflective level, which is where our self-image resides, which is where we monitor our own behavior and see how well we're doing or how badly, and that's where our memories are, and that's where consciousness is, and that is reflective design, which is about branding and positioning, so that there's a biological basis, but on top of that, we can translate it into design.
1: I see. And to uh, what degree do most companies fit each of these levels of processing in their design of technology, do you think?
2: Well, at this moment, some of the designers have good intuitive feels for the various levels, although they don't have the language to describe it. They don't realize they're talking about three levels. And quite often what happens, designers will be arguing with each other, and I can come in and say, look, guys, you actually are in agreement, but you're talking about the visceral level, and you're talking about, say, the reflective level. So... What I've tried to do is provide a framework so that we can get some common conversation. But I like to point out that the Apple iPod is a, co- is a device that functions really well at all three levels. It's viscerally attractive, mm-hmm. it's behaviorally elegant, it's remarkably easy to use and fun to use. And even though you may have thousands of songs, it's not hard to find the one you want. And finally, at the reflective level, well, it's an Apple. And anybody knows that the person who owns an Apple device mm-hmm. is a superior person. <laughs>
1: Indeed, indeed. So, I mean, Apple is, in fact, well known for making these pleasing devices that have some aesthetic appeal as well. What is it, do you think, about Apple compared to other companies that they get this sort of aspect in their design of products?
2: Well, the interesting thing is most of the companies seem to think of themselves as technology companies. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was just talking recently to a candy company that thought it was all about the candy and the taste. Uh. And I'm saying, no, it isn't. And Apple recognizes that they really are a consumer company, and what they have to do is make things fit into your lives that you're proud to have. And most of the other technology companies, well, they're still technology companies. And for this candy company, I was trying to point out the whole point of candy was the pleasure it affords, it's the experience, including the wrapping and the unwrapping. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not just the taste. Saying it's just the taste is kind of like saying to the technology companies, well, you know, how many megabits or gigabits this thing has or how fast it goes. No, that's not what it's about.
1: So what do you think it would take for uh, companies to make this paradigm shift in terms of the design of their products?
2: Uh, Shut them down and start over again.
1: Really? (laughs) It's that entrenched?
2: In the computer world, there is only Apple who gets it and Sony, Hmm. so that the best, most attractive devices in the computer world are the bio line of Sony. Um, Microsoft, surprisingly, actually has a fair number of people who are trying to move in this direction and who understand the importance of design, the understanding of consumers, but Microsoft is like lots of other large companies, very, very large, mostly technologically based, and so it's difficult to turn around. But there are people at Microsoft who get it. A company that really gets it is Disney. Disney. That's what Disney is all about. It's about your experience.
1: So in the design of these technological projects, then, how should should companies actually go about trying to approach the design of a new product, then? What should they put first?
2: People. First thing is, go out and watch your prospective customers. What are they doing? How do they live their life? What do they consider to be important? What do they like? What do they dislike? And this also means you have to look at different customer groups. The uh, cellular telephone, say that the Chinese teenager, teenage girl, likes Uh, an American teenage girl may not like, and certainly an American business person will definitely not like. But first, you have to start off with your people, with your prospective customers, by observation, not by focus groups, not by questionnaires, not by surveys, Mm -hmm. because these ask their conscious reflections, which really don't describe what they're doing. So you have to watch. Mm.
1: So you did bring up the the Chinese, and I guess it's well known that they do have a lot of these gadgets that are there for sort of emotional pleasure. Do they have sort of a better uh, understanding of this?
2: See, I think this is true at all cultures. Mm-hmm. That a lot of what we like are things that just give us emotional pleasure. Cell phones are actually a good example. The very small, sleek cell phones. What's interesting, if you watch people using them, a lot of people hold them in their hands and fondle them. They just turn them over and over and over again, or rub the sides of the cases. Mm-hmm. And that's—it's kind of a visceral pleasure, and it has nothing to do with the fact that you can actually talk on it or send messages. Mm-hmm. It's all about the feeling, and that's not unlike the Japanese, or for that matter, the Chinese person who puts dongles on it mm. uh, and hangs little things off the cell phone and puts a little device over the antenna that closes whenever you mm-hmm. use the phone, or puts stickers on it and changes the cases. People in Europe, or for that matter, the U.S., any place in the world who buy special ringtones, it's all for the pleasure.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you mentioned a couple of them, but are there any other good examples of technology that has that those aspects to it?
2: Oh, I think all technology in the end, because technology is all made for human purposes. Mm -hmm. And especially if you look at technology that belongs in the home, it should have these things. Watches. What Mm is a a watch? Of course, it's supposed to tell you the time, but we actually call it jewelry, because it's been around long enough, it's been part of our lives long enough. We care a lot about the impression it makes and about its appearance. And many of us have multiple watches, and we wear a different one depending upon our activity or how we're dressed, whether it's very formal or informal. Um, our television sets dominate the house, and it's about time television sets became attractive additions instead of these glaring monsters. Hmm. And the new flat screen sets are, have actually moved us in that direction, very attractively styled. Even kitchen appliances can be tasteful. Hence, you know, the great success of Michael Graves' line of kitchen appliances that are uh, actually very attractive to look at. He isn't the only one, but that's a, a name that most people are familiar with.
1: Mm-hmm. In the design of a lot of technological devices, sometimes just the device that is first on the market tends to become uh, the standardized aspect of it, and it's really hard to replace that particular product, and so as a result, it's harder and harder to get sort of more innovative and newer, uh, aesthetically pleasing devices on there. No,
2: that's not true. This is a very complex story. Mm -hmm. The first mover advantage is highly uh, overrated. Mm -hmm. So what was the first popular home computer? Actually, I forget the name of the first uh, one like Altair or two. Or something? Altair, right? Mm. And then, but the most popular early one was Apple. Apple mm. had the dominant lead, mm. and then was taken over by the IBM PC. In my opinion, by a massive set of blundering mm. by Apple's marketing division and by Steve Jobs, who mm. said, "Oh well, we don't care about business people. This is a computer for the rest of us, for the small minority of us." So mm. Apple lost the lead. Huh. And uh, the same with the first American automobile. You don't even know the name of the company. It's dead. Right. Um, but there are two kinds of, of products. One of them is an infrastructure product. And there is to everybody's advantage to have the very same infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But second is the, um, the one that doesn't depend on the infrastructure. And in many ways, that's where the PC market is today. Yeah, we've all standardized on the Windows operating system because that has made life easier. But that doesn't put any restriction whatsoever on the shape and form and manner of the, of the mm-hmm. computer, the physical box. The fact that everybody is following the same form factor, and they all kind of <laughs> look this dull, beige, nothing, right. is simply a lack of imagination.
1: Well, even, I guess, with infrastructure devices, I mean, for instance, the, uh, the keyboard on computers is, in fact, the most inefficient keyboard there is, right? The QWERTY keyboard. That's not
2: I? true. Uh, I can give you lots more inefficiencies. Okay. An alphanumeric, an alphabetically organized keyboard is... Right dramatically more uh, inefficient than the QWERTY. In fact, the QWERTY isn't bad, because you may remember in the early days the keys on these mechanical buttons right. jammed. And right. so to stop the jamming, you made keys that were typed together as far apart on the, you know, the keyboard as they could think of. Right. But that tended to make them on opposing hands, and guess what? See, they used to type with just one hand or one or two fingers. But uh-huh. today we type with both hands, all fingers, and the QWERTY is pretty fast as right. a result because ten, we tend to alternate hands. Right. Yes, there's a keyboard that's faster, Dvorak, but right. it's not enough faster to make a difference. Hmm. What, what I find bizarre about the keyboard is how big and monstrous it is, hmm. that it has never changed since the early days of the old IBM machine, which got adopted for some old reason for the keyboard, of, of these machines and it has things on it like print screen and screen lock and <laughs> number lock and pause break and I don't even know what they mean and they occupy it. that's why it's so big and so monstrous the problem is that people learn to make these monstrous keyboards for just a couple of dollars mm. and when you try to simplify it it ends up costing you more money because you don't have the volume mm. so there's an example of that's the appendix of the of the computer Print screen is like the appendix of the mm. body. What's it doing there? Screen lock.
1: Pause <laughs> break. Well, we are running uh, slightly out of time, but I'm curious, as long as we're on in input devices, are there any uh, sort of more aesthetically uh, pleasing type input devices that you would recommend rather than a keyboard?
2: If you're going to be doing manuscripts and doing standard writing, mm-hmm. the keyboard, in my opinion, will be with us forever. Mm. Uh, it's better than anything else, including speech, because it uses a different motor system than, than thinking. Mm. And for pointing, we're going to move towards gestures. We have the mouse, which isn't bad. We have touch-sensitive screens. That's appropriate at times. And we'll we'll soon have gesture systems where a TV camera looks at us. Mm -hmm. But, hey, you forgot about fun. You've always asked me about usability and making it work well. My goal now is to say, look, you know, the stuff is good enough. We can use the stuff. Let's make it pleasurable and fun. And that's what I've been working on, making it fun to do, making it attractive, making us proud to own it. Making us look forward to using our technologies instead of, whew, relief that I got <laughs> through it. That's what the new book is all about. Right.
1: Um, well, so I guess as a final word then, what would be your recommendation then to companies to design their products?
2: My recommendation is, hey guys, it's not about technology. It's about people. So let's go out and watch people. Start off by watching and understanding people. Do iterative design where you do quick cycles. Try and understand if this is going to work. Look for novel uses. And make sure it's a joy, a pleasure. Emotional design is what it's about. It's not about technology. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I I think those are certainly uh, good words of advice. Uh, Professor Norman, I just want to thank you very much for your time and joining us today on Berkeley Grox.
2: You're quite welcome. I enjoyed it.
1: You were just listening to Professor Donald Norman discussing his book, Emotional Design, Why We Love or Hate Everyday Things. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. Alright, we're back from the break. Uh, Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back here with uh, Professor Donald Norman, who has graciously agreed to uh, stick around and play our game, Grokatron 5000. Professor Norman, again, is the author of the book Emotional Design, Why We Love or Hate Everyday Things. Uh, Professor Norman, thank you very much for uh, sticking around.
2: Well, I think it's a bit wariness. (laughs) Uh, What are you going to ask me?
1: Okay, so what we have is our game called the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue and he's chosen a game for us today called user-friendly or not user-friendly so for each of the following five items i wish you could tell me if you think each item is user-friendly or not user-friendly and maybe a little bit about why so are you ready to play our game the grokatron five thousand
2: okay i'm in the starting position
1: okay very good the grokatron five thousand has chosen these five items and item number one user-friendly or not user-friendly janet jackson's wardrobe
2: Oh. Very (laughs) user-friendly. Did what it was supposed to do.
1: Okay. Well, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, Item number two, the internal revenue service.
2: Definitely not. Definitely not. In fact, I think it's a deliberate ploy on their
1: part. Again, I think many people would have to agree with that as well. Uh, User-friendly or not user-friendly, item number three, fast food restaurants.
2: Not bad. Not bad. Their goal actually is to make you come back, after all. So to be pleased is what they give you and to come back. And one trick, of course, is always order something special on your meal so you don't get the, uh, the sandwich that's been sitting under the heat ah. warmer for five minutes.
1: Ah, good advice. Item number four, user-friendly or not user-friendly, the electoral college system.
2: Well, that's complex. Um, I think the basic system isn't bad given the time when it was invented and the problem it was trying to solve. Remember, we're a representative democracy, not a real democracy, so that uh, we're not supposed to be voting for real candidates. We're supposed to be voting for somebody else's whose judgment we trust who then votes for the candidates. But in today's world, the electoral college is is silly because we actually are voting, and it's our vote to count directly. And if we vote for an electoral college representative who goes against the, the votes, Although that's legal, I believe. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, we would all be really upset. Right. So I think it's not so much user friendly or not as an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an old system that no longer meets today's times.
1: Right. Item number five: uh, user friendly or not user friendly? Post modern art.
2: This is what I would call um, reflective design Mm -hmm. that the point of art to a large extent is not to be beautiful at first sight but to cause you to think to cause you to get new insights and to cause you to have a response whether positive or negative a strong negative response is just as valuable in art as a strong positive one so in that sense it's supposed to be not user-friendly
1: well i guess that would explain the confounding of a lot of people (laughs) Well, Professor Norman, I, I just want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around to play our game, Grokatron 5000, 10 And your the book. game
2: was fun. It wasn't as bad as uh, I had feared
1: oh. it might be. Oh, very good. I'm, again, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on uh, Brick and Grocks and discussing your book, Emotional Design, Why We Love or Hate Everyday Things. You're quite welcome. <laughs> <laughs> mm, all right, and now is the Doctor of Style with the answer to last week's Question of the Week. Ooh, baby, you know I love the fishes. ...with air slipping and sliding through the water. It's so cool! But I was always wondering, how them fishes extract the air out of the water? Well, they have these special structures called gills, which act as filtering mechanisms to take the air right out of it. And that's how they do it! Oh, it's so cool!
0: Mm Hmm, it surrounds us, it binds us, and it tells us the time. Mm Hmm, it is the clock, but it only moves with the force, in one direction, clockwise. (laughs) <laughs> I've always wondered why. If you don't know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail dot com. You won't win anything, but you'll always be on time. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.